Looking to start your own website? The first thing you need is a domain name, and the best place to get one is at GoDaddy.com. With your domain registration, you'll get hosting, a free blog, complete email, and much more. Plus, as a MuggleCast listener, enter code RON, that's R-O-N when you check out, and get your .com domain name for just $7.49 a year. Get your piece of the internet at GoDaddy.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash MuggleCast. This is Professor McGonagall welcoming you to all to MuggleCast, hoping you enjoyed. Dobby, Dobby, come here. Yeah, Dobby. Yes, well, I'd just like to say how very pleased I am to introduce MuggleCast to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Because Eric has made a very special new friend through the show, this is MuggleCast episode 195 for April 1st, 2010. Welcome to MuggleCast episode 195. Micah and Eric are here, as well as me. Hey, guys. Hey. What's up? This is not what people think. We're not turning into a three-person show. It just turned out that way, to be quite frank. And, uh, I mean, for, for two weeks in a row, having three people. So we are here again to grace you with our presence and introduce you to the wonderful world of Harry Potter as we do every other week. Still don't have a name for ourselves for this particular three trio configuration. But is it necessary? No, no. Because it's a temporary thing, you know? We're not turning into a three-man show, as you say. Right, right. We can be called May, M-A-E, Micah, Andrew, Eric. May, the May. Right. Or Ema, or AIM. I like Ema better. Emma. Ema. Yeah, Ema. Laura should be back soon, though. We're, we're getting into April. Isn't she due back from uh, Costa yes. Rica? Costa Rica. And then we could call ourselves lame, Laura, Andrew, Micah, Eric. We were called that long before now. We are lame with Laura. Thank you, Laura, for coming back. We are now lame. Well, at any rate, we are far from lame. We have uh, much to discuss on this week's show, as we do every new episode. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Micah Tannenbaum. What is in the news this week? Oh, you know, just a few things. Not, not a big news week at all. Lies, lies. Yeah, they are lies. Well, we actually did a, a mini cast late last week because we finally got a opening date for the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park. The park will open officially on June the 18th, 2010, Woo! which 
really is not all that far from now. We are just about to turn the calendar over to April, and uh, just about a month and a half away, the park will open so, to the public. So, Micah, now, a, a while oh, sorry, ago... sorry, two and a half months. Two oh, and I was going to say. Two and a half months. A while ago... <laughs> I forgot about May. There is May. There is May, of course. Um... So, Micah, a few months ago, I guess, Wizarding World gave a projected estimate, and it, I guess it was showing up on their signs. They said, Spring 2010. Now, June 18th is this uh, release date, and, uh, well, technically, I suppose it is still Spring 010 by about it's three, three days. days. And many people so a little upset. I, I, don't, I don't know. Is it justified for people to be upset that it's, well, you know. I know. Honestly, I'm a little thrown off because, I mean, this park looks like it's pretty much done. They're starting to do more promotional stuff. We're seeing TV crews inside the park now. Yeah, sure. I'm sure there's some things inside the stores and rides that they still have to get right. But it looks pretty complete. And yet, we're still about two and a half months away. Now, when they said a few weeks ago, oh, we're about to announce the opening date, I thought, oh, well, then it must be opening. May at the latest, I thought, and I told Micah, I thought it would be coming in April. It would be opening in April. Yeah, I know a lot of people were were upset, particularly because, you know, you book spring break, whether you're a college student, whether you're somebody who's uh, not yet in college, you know, you go on a family trip sometimes during your, your March or your April breaks, and maybe you anticipated going to this park thinking spring of 2010. But at the same time, I think you have to realize that that date was sort of a guesstimate, and things don't always work out the right way. You could have problems with rides. You could have problems with, you know, construction. So I, I just think that you know, people should just relax a little bit and, and just hope that, you know, it doesn't get pushed back another six months or something like that, as we've been witness to before with other WB products. <laughs> yes. And actually, we should say that they are many uh, what happens with these theme parks. I know I'm going to sound like a theme park expert right now, but from what I've read is these... Uh, theme parks will open up before the grand opening to do tests, which they call soft openings. So the park will open to some very lucky people who happen to be in Universal that day. Um, they're not going to advertise that the park's going to be open. They're just going to open it and let people come in and have, you know, people in there to test everything, make sure everything's working. Oh, can't fine. wait to get when that happens and you happen to be at Universal, call us. I'm actually, I have plans uh, starting in about two weeks from now. I am bringing a tent, and I am camping outside <laughs> the Hogsmeade gates, and I will be there to report on it for you guys because I want you know we want to give the best coverage possible. I can just so see the first time like, that it opens, I'll let you know. Torrential downpour, and you, you know, like the Twister ride at Universal, or just outside, and yeah, I'll hide in the in the shops when right. the, if that happens. And uh, we mentioned earlier the the mini cast that we did about uh, the Forbidden Journey ride, which which Eric got an opportunity to go and walk through at least the queue part of it. Uh, so if you don't mind, Eric, can you do a, a little bit of an overview of that? We don't want to spend too much time on it because they not. can go and listen to that. Yeah, definitely podcast. go to the to the mini cast for that. Um, but I was actually I was able to go down to Florida uh, where they treated us very nicely, and we actually got to walk through the castle. Um, which is uh, part of the park. And basically, we saw the queue line for the Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey ride. You start off in the dungeons, because it's the lower level, and Hogwarts is up on the hill above you. So you start off in the dungeons, and you see things like the Mirror of Erised, the one on Witch statue. You go up a few steps, you see the entrance hall, you go through the... Um, 
greenery, the greenhouse, and you know all this time there's there, it's decorative. You it, it looks like you're really there in Hogwarts. There's statues of like the architect. And now what? Um, another thing you're allowed to talk about now is the the hair. You also got to try the all the drinks and the food that they're, that they're going to. This ha- was not in the minicast. Yes, I did get to try. Right. They did bring us uh, the food that would be served in the park. A lot of it. We got to try butter beer. We got to try pumpkin juice. All of it's going to be really, really refreshing on a hot summer day. Well, were you um, satisfied with all of it? I mean, do you think Harry Potter fans are going to be satisfied yeah. with it all in general? I think, honestly, I think the food is a standalone thing where you're, you're going to be able to come into the park just to eat the food and then leave. I mean, not because the rest of the park isn't exciting, but if you wanted to, I mean, that's going to be the place to eat when you're in the Islands of Adventure theme park. Did they say anything about prices for the food? I mean, because uh, theme park... They said the prices, yeah, the prices weren't decided. Okay. It was a question that they yeah. asked and... Theme parks in general, they do have expensive food, so I imagine that, you know, it won't be exactly cheap, but, you know, you're on vacation there for, you know, possibly once in a lifetime, so you might it's as well I mean, Whatever enjoy. it'll be, it'll be worth it. I mean, if you've tried the butterbeer, you'd understand. It's just, it's amazing. But um, there's also Universal, like when I was there, in the Islands of Adventure, there's a an all-day eating pass, which is like, I think it's $20, and it's like all you can eat pretty much from anywhere on it. I'm not sure if that's going to like be included. Obviously, it's something to be worked out later, but... It's going to be worth it because you can get, I mean, just the dessert alone that we tried um, from the Hogwarts Park is unbelievable. So, Eric, one more thing just on the food front that I wanted to ask you about. I know the butterbeer is not going to be alcoholic, but apparently there's going to be an alcoholic beverage uh, available at the Hogshead. Yes. The Hogshead Pub, evidently, from what I understand, like the maps and stuff, the Hogshead is actually going to be attached to the three broomsticks, is going to be in the back of it, and it's going to be the adult section where they have, I guess, a variety of regular ale, like real world, Miller Lite, that sort of thing. Um, but they have devised a Hogshead Brew, which is like a, basically a unique brew, um, that's going to be alcoholic, and that's, that's the adult beverage that they will be serving in the park so um (laughs) yeah it's gonna be uh, i I, you know if it's if it's any bit i think i wrote in the report too like if it's any bit you know as as detailed as the care that they put into like pumpkin juice and butterbeer it's gonna be really good yeah and and one final thing you said that there were there were a couple of people who are there from overseas that were really impressed with sort of the authenticity of the food it's interesting because like if it were their first time if it were their first time in America, I would want them to try, like, you know, the American burger and stuff. They ended up getting, you know, to go to this, this, um, you know, meeting and, and, and try all this British food, like fish and chips and, you know, Cornish pasties, all of this. The, um, there was a, I forget what sites they're from, and I wish I had their names, lovely people, um, from Britain and Ireland, and they really love the food, and they said it's just like home. And it's interesting because uh, all of the cuisine, you know, it's themed like Hogwarts to be European, uh, you know, to have that European twist recipes to, to make it feel like you're in Hogwarts. I mean, even the shepherd's pie uh, is, is you know, strictly a European recipe. They, you know, divide, not not American. In other words, un-American. <laughs> All right. Well, for all that we have, whether it's on the food or on the Forbidden Journey ride, you can check out both reports by Eric. They're very well written. They're very in-depth. So definitely check those out on MuggleNet.com. And uh, there is a third report coming. We don't know necessarily what it's about, but Eric did mention it's a three-part series. So expect that out at some point. 
I don't know when, but I don't know when. Sometime in the future. <laughs> I don't know when. Universal. Well, has I to might tell know me. when, but oh, they yeah. don't know when. They so. Don't know when. And before we continue, we'd like to remind everyone that this week's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than seventy-five thousand downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their great service. One book that I know Potter fans would like to consider is The Lightning Thief, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, book one. It is an excellent book and narrated by Jesse Bernstein for Audible.com. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash mugglecast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash mugglecast. Andrew, you visited the set of Deathly Hollows recently. <laughs> yes, that's right. And um, unlike Eric, I can't say a thing about it. I don't even know if I could say I went there. So, <laughs> but I will anyway. No, I think I can say that. But uh, as usual with these set visits that that we do, um, we'll be able to release information closer to um, the re- release of the film. Can you at least and say who you spoke with? Um, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> And I don't mean to be like, na 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 poo poo but I think they really don't want us to. When a trailer is released, though, we will be allowed to post a preview. So, you'll find out then. Interesting. Right. But, the sets are looking amazing. The scene that we saw, it fulfilled my expectations in terms of how I was hoping that they were going to be filming these films. So, I'll put it that way. I'm very satisfied. Now, was that, was that the set that burned down later that night, or... No comment. <laughs> yeah, you can't say. I can't say. This, okay, but part of a set at the same studio. If you he were was at a betting down? man, if he was a betting man, he would possibly say that 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 could be accurate. If I were a betting man, I would bet on what Micah was betting on. But only if I was a betting man. You guys gamble too much. <laughs> All right. Uh, All right. But what speaking else? Speaking of Deathly on? Hollows, though, Emma Thompson, who was supposedly not going to be in this final film outspoken is in it i i don't know i don't know who other way to say that clemens posey blew the uh the lid off of this one saying right. that she was on set recently um for for filming and i guess that means that uh we will indeed see her playing the role of professor trelawney and here's the thing though i, I mean i know a lot of us had a, a bit of a problem with it a, a, I guess it was a couple months ago now when we found out that she wasn't going to be doing it because she had other commitments. But it's such a small scene. I mean, she's just basically going around throwing uh, prophecy orbs at, at, at people or crystal balls yeah. at people. So it, it's not that much. I mean, she's just in that final battle scene. So she's and she said she's only she only did two days of filming. So. You know, they probably said to her, Emma, look, uh, I know you don't want to come back, give your priorities elsewhere, but it's just two days of filming. Could you do it for us? And she was probably, probably like, a couple oh, million dollars, yes. too. <laughs> yeah. God, well, I hope not. I mean, it'll help her fund her movie. Like, I haven't seen Nanny McPhee, but Emma Thompson is really putting a lot of um, effort into, I, well, first of all, that movie, I think she co-wrote it, and now the sequel that's coming out that was also talked about in that same article. Yeah, and it's big in the U.K., that's a very big uh, franchise, I guess you could call it, Nanny McPhee. Oh, really? Okay, cool. So we'll, we'll be seeing like a Wizarding World of Nanny McPhee <laughs> yeah. soon. Maybe not quite, but um, you know, Emma Thompson obviously is a great actress, and it's good news to see that she's coming back because it's the last film. It'll be very nice to see everyone return. 
Absolutely. Kind of like the last season of Lost. Right. So, uh, final bit of news from Deathly Hollows is that uh, there was a little bit of a, of a pre-screening that took place. And WB screened some raw and unfinished footage from the final film uh, at Show West. And uh, Alan Horn, who's the president of Warner Brothers, introduced this little four to seven minute long clip. And uh, basically, I'm just going to read here for a second. The footage started with Voldemort walking in the forest with all his followers around him. He was just looking for Harry. While I assumed the footage was going to be just from the first Harry Potter movie coming this November, I think the opening was from part two, and it was from the big climatic battle between Harry and Voldemort, and that was from Collider. So uh, interesting that they would be showing this, um, especially if it's from part two, knowing that it's more than a year away. Right, and a separate report from Cinema Blend said that they also showed some stuff from uh, Bill and Fleur's wedding, to the escape from Gr- Gringotts on the Pale Dragon, and even Hogwarts on fire. So it looks like they showed a hmm. lot of cool action scenes. And um, so, uh, listen, I mean, do you think that's because they've been filming both of these films back to back? And I'm not surprised. And 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 filming is supposed to wrap up in a couple months. So I am not surprised that you know they're showing some of this stuff. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see that there's a lot. Of, I mean, there's a lot of stuff like too, like the escape from Gringotts will presumably be in part two. That Hogwarts on fire should be in part yeah. two. You know, Voldemort and Harry in part two. It is a year away, but do you think that uh, movie one is that makes that make? Do you think that that their their focus on showing movie two makes movie one more of like a unique uh, pet project, kind of like a kind of like a questionable whether or not people are going to like it? They're not marketing it, it as much because there's not enough of that that big that it'll be kind of a character driven, different type of movie. Do you think that that part one of Deathly Hallows that this means that they're gonna that it's going to be, you know, unsuitable to over-promote no, as they've no. done, and that's why they're already promoting the second? Show, the thing you... about Show West, uh, my understanding is that it's mainly for people in the motion picture industry. So they're showing this to, you know, the bigwigs in the film industry, and they got to show and the cool stuff to those guys. These days, if you're not blowing stuff yeah, up, exactly. what are you doing with the $10 million? It's a road opera, right? I mean, isn't that, was not that the term that was used? <laughs> road movie, yeah. Road movie and an opera. Um, so it's a road but, opera. Yeah, I think that's what it is, especially, you know, when these other studios are coming knocking on the door. Oh, look at us with Iron Man 2 and all this action. You know, WB has to show some serious action. That's true. And uh, so, four, but four to seven minutes of That's Deathly Hollows footage. And what annoys me is that they're showing it to these people who don't care. And that and nobody yet, recorded it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but these are, you know, these are professionals. They, none of them want, you know, their studio footage leaking out. But my point is that uh, all these people saw it, but not the fans. It's like, give the fans a bone. We've had two, and you know, we complained about this around the release, prior to the release, prior to the release of every movie that they're not giving us enough stuff and you know at this point we've gotten one teaser trailer and two official images so yeah well i think we'll we're due for another trailer in the not too distant future i I mean i can't make predictions like ben can but uh you know certainly uh he he was on the mark with with half-blood prince so we might have to get him to channel his his inner trelawney again on an upcoming episode (laughs) Yes. Uh, well, Half-Blood Prince is another movie that we was over-promoted. Like, oh, by the time, like, sure, over-promoted. we had nothing at first. Sure, we had nothing at photos first, but then we had... Photos upon photos photos. Fo- photos. photos, 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 Okay, also, Bloomsbury has announced that uh, 
they have plans to republish the Harry Potter paperbacks with brand new covers. And, of course, you can take a look at all the different colors in high-res on MuggleNet.com. Um, what's your guys' thoughts about this? Is this a little too early to be uh, republishing the series, uh, at least from a cover art standpoint? It's so interesting. Bloomsbury has already had the adult editions, too, of Harry Potter. Like, the UK, honestly, they have oversaturated amount of, of uh, you know, book covers to choose from. That said, I like these. I really like these. You can see well, these the, do look more adult. The high res images, you. yeah, and not as uh, morose or, or you know, not as dark and and like the adult covers of the Harry Potter books are almost too adult or too vague. Like I really, really, really like these, and the images are on MuggleNet. And these new books that are coming out, I guess, when are they being published? Do you know, in November. Said, uh, November, but um. They look really cool, and they—I guess—they have a new artist that they brought on to do these. And really, it's—it's—it's it's, it's very creative. Like, I don't know necessarily if there's like if there's anything that warrants it, except to say that I think it's really cool. And also, like, at least they're not doing books. At least they're not printing the Harry Potter books with the film stars on it, you know, and saying now a major motion yeah, picture. Yeah, that's true. Like Twilight, that's bull. But th- these covers are very interesting. But here's the thing. They're C.S. Lewis-like. The the covers are nice, but they're doing this solely to attract new readers. I don't think new covers are going to intrigue new people. And I know that it's... I'm sure it's going to be very hard over the next few decades for Scholastic and Bloomsbury primarily to reach out to new people who are growing new generations of kids. And... But I don't think... This is the way to do it. I think maybe reminding people what the time was like when these books came out. That's the way to do it. Not with new covers. Yeah, maybe, I, th- but- I think they've made them a little bit old school, too. I, I just yeah, said they they're, they're C.S. Lewis-like. From, you know, you look at the Chronicles of Narnia. They are very Narnia, C.S. Lewis-like. That's, it seems to be what they modeled them after, where it's sort of that just one iconic piece from the books and just the way that it's it's drawn. Uh, they do that with, with the Chronicles of Narnia. It, it, obviously, there are many different covers to that series now, but that that's exactly what it reminded me of when I saw that. So, yeah, I, I think it's just it's just a little bit too soon uh, for me. It, I agree. It, it, there's no reason. Um, you know, the, the last paperback came out not even three years ago. Uh, so, or no, did they didn't come out in 08? The well, paperback for Deathly Hollows. Yeah, because the because the Deathly Hollows. But or was well, it 09? It was, no, it was 09. It was, it was 09. 09. Yeah, they so waited I mean, for the movie release. One at year least in, for Scholastic. Yeah, I mean that's ridiculous though that that you're already remaking. I mean that's just to make a profit, in my opinion. Well, what, no about, what about those those covers that they print with like stars or something? Wasn't Bloomsbury also doing like extra stars or super special stars? There on was the, some uh, special edition or something. But here's the thing, and Micah, you're right. Yes, they are looking for more money. There have been nor- numerous articles about Scholastic and Bloomsbury post-Potter saying their profits have fallen. And of course, that's that's expected. You're coming off Harry Potter, one of the biggest book series of all time. So, yeah, I mean, does this kind of look a little desperate? In my opinion, yes, because it is so soon. You know, if you waited 10 years after 2007, that would make sense, absolutely. Well, final piece of news, just want to bring it up really quick because we mentioned it before, was the, the Lego Harry Potter video game release date getting pushed back another month 
or so, uh, and, and just kind of get your guys' really quick thoughts on, on what we've seen up to this point, because more and more is getting released uh, about the video game. You know, a lot of uh, videos have been put out there, and, and this game really looks like it, it, it just does a great job of following the books, and a lot of people, I think, are going to be really happy with it. Yeah, I, I'm excited for it. It is disappointing that it's delayed till June now, but I think that that's a pretty common occurrence in the video game in- industry. And hey, if they if they need that extra time to make a better game, then yeah, sure, absolutely. fine, have the extra time. So See, I'm looking Andrew, forward to it. The pictures you, look great. The animation looks great. The gameplay looks great. When you posted this news item, it was like a day after you posted like two or three separate international videos yeah. that were that previewed this game and you basically in your news article talking about the delay said this is common video games do this all the time in fact you won't, you stop short of just saying i i knew this was going to happen yeah well i'm going to throw this out there and it may be a conspiracy theory but the park is opening on june 18th maybe they want a little bit more business by releasing the game around the same time oh okay in the park. In the park. Fair theory. <laughs> what if, like, nobody showed up for the release of the park because everyone was like, yeah, let's play Lego Harry Potter. Forget the park. No, I don't I think that I can buy this happen. for $50. <laughs> well, the, actually, the game is going to be more widely available than, than the Butterbeer. Exactly. But, but see, sometimes that happens. I mean, you could see, like, a Lego Harry Potter station or two being set up around the park even to test out the game. I could see that happening. So is that all the news this week, Micah? That is it. All right. You know, not too much. Yeah, thank, well, thank you for updating us, as always. I try. We're going to try something new this week. We're not going to go into Muggle Mail. I thought we should try just going straight into chapter by chapter, to sort of, you know, we'll give it a try, see how it goes. To intro chapter by chapter this week, we have another segment intro. This one may be one of my favorites. It's really clever. It is from Emma and Tom. Let's take a listen. It's time for chapter by chapter... Chapter by chapter, chapter by chapter, we're going chapter by chapter. I love that. I love symmetry and parallels and perpendiculars. Everything is so cool. So clear. Why? It is our choice. See, that is my point. Exactly. Far more than our determines who we truly are. Good point. Da 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 da. So there you go. Thank you, Emma and Tom, for that intro. A clever little mashup. I like mashups. It was a lot of me, Andrew mashup. Yeah, that uh, so that must a, have been why like I, I wasn't paying attention. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we can see why you like that. <laughs> you said, well, did you say something about mashed potatoes? <laughs> it was it was very well produced. Thank you, Emma and Tom. So now we're ready to get into chapter by chapter. And this week we're looking at chapters 13 through 15 of Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, chapter 13. Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw. The chapter opens with uh, Ron, who looks, who's visibly and audibly angry at Hermione for Crookshanks' alleged killing of Scabbers, and everyone <laughs> except Hermione is convinced that Scabbers was eaten by Crookshanks. You know, it's sort of an awkward atmosphere. So Harry decides to cheer Ron up. He'll take him down to watch Harry practice Quidditch for the next day's game, the big Ravenclaw versus Gryffindor match. And he tells Ron, look, uh, to, to cheer you up, you, yeah, you can ride my firebolt. And that sort of cheers up Ron. So just before starting the Quidditch practice, Harry gets his first introduction to Cho Chang. And uh, who, of course, we all know is his love interest in Goblet of Fire. And it's ki- kind of ironic because when Oliver tells Harry about Cho Chang, 
Oliver says, quote, I really hoped she wouldn't be fit, end quote, which is kind of ironic because Harry hopes Cho Chang fits his relationship, Bill, in the next book. <laughs> yeah, she's kind of crazy. And Oliver Wood says, oh, she's had a lot of injuries this year. I hope she wouldn't, you know, be able to, to play, but she's uh, physically sound and just not maybe mentally. So I don't know. I feel like Cho Chang gets a bad rap in the books. Um, for your first point, Andrew, I wanted to just comment. Does Hermione really have a reason to, to believe that Crookshanks didn't eat scabbers? I mean, to be honest, at the, at the end of the previous chapter, there's a lot of evidence against, uh, Crookshanks with the, the blood and the hair on the, on the bed sheets. I just, I, I can't see other than Hermione being, I don't want to say stubborn, but, yeah. you know, she's very emotional about this. Does she have any reason to suspect that, uh, that Crookshanks didn't actually eat scabbers? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I was going to bring up the same thing. I mean, I think she is being a bit stubborn here. That There's no question about it. She's she's really adamant about the fact that, that she's right. And I think, you know, even though she is in the long term, uh, it's just something about her character. I don't think she can accept the fact of being wrong or if that she brought in this animal that, that killed her best friend's pet. I, I don't think she can bring herself to, to the reality that that could have happened. And so it's, it's very isolating, you know. I mean, Harry and Ron kind of go off on their own and Hermione, you know, it, I think the the first chapter, I mean, the chapter opens up with like, it looked like the end of their friendship. Yeah, it goes um, along with her know-it-all personality, I think, to, to have that kind of a, of a stance that, oh, there's no way that my pet cat could have ever done something yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, in reality, Scabbers deserves to have been attacked by Crookshanks. Yeah, if, if, I mean, if that's what happened, and, you know, cats will be cats, and you gotta expect that kind of thing to happen. So, moving along, uh, Harry uses his firebolt for the first time. It's described as being able to turn with the lightest touch. It seemed to obey thoughts rather than his grips. Go across the field, it's a speed that the stadium turned into a green and gray blur. And I thought that was kind of interesting how Joe described it, because it's very dreamlike. Turned with yeah. the lightest touch. It's like a segue. It seemed to obey his thoughts rather than his grips. It just sounds it's beautiful. Really cool. Like you want to ride it when you read this description. Yeah, he's got a uh, top of the line broom, and and I also think it has a little bit to do with how good Harry is. You know, I, I yeah. think that plays into it as well as as to how he's able to complement uh, this particular piece yeah. of sporting equipment. You know, he he is the best Quidditch player at least from Gryffindor, and, and it shows in this particular scene. And I don't know. See, that's the interesting question. Would anybody else be able to you know, take command of a firebolt and be able to use it the same way Harry does? You know, they say it's this great broom, but yeah. I think because of the player Harry is, it just comes naturally to him. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting, actually. And I, when you were talking about that, I was thinking, well, I wonder if Draco were to try this. What would happen then? I don't think it would be described this way. Uh probably more in a negative tone but yeah harry and the firebolt are like a yin and a yang they're they're together they're as one be one with the firebolts trelawney would probably say so the team has a perfect practice and for the first time oliver has no complaints which is awesome it's sort of like when eric has absolutely nothing to say it's very <laughs> rare yes it is very rare <laughs> i'm saying that right now because eric had to walk away to take care of his dog so the next morning harry and what I believe is sort of a move of arrogance, brings his firebolt into the Great Hall during breakfast. Uh, all right, so he sort of had to bring it in because he was going right out to the Quidditch field right after. All right, but he could have hit it or something. I don't know. Everyone oohs and ahs at it, and Draco 
asks Harry if he's sure he can still protect himself against the, de- the Dementors. And Harry fights back with an insult about Draco's Seeker abilities, which ends up being a pretty funny moment. Yeah, he tells Malfoy that he hopes that uh, <laughs> he could attach some extra arms to it so he could catch the snitch for him. That's one of the few candid Harry moments, you know, where Harry's not talking to just Ron or Hermione about how he feels. And Harry actually has to go up against somebody and, you know, use his mind. It's very interesting. So moving along, prior to the game starting, Harry sees the Ravenclaw Seeker, Cho Chang, for the first time. And uh, there's heavy foreshadowing here. Uh, Joe says that Harry noticed, quote, she was extremely pretty. And he felt a slight lurch in the region of his stomach that he didn't think had anything to do with nerves. And, you know, reading this now, you say, oh, yeah, Harry's got a crush on her. That's that's kind of cute. Sort of taking his attention away from the game. But now, if you if you read this now, having read Goblet of Fire, all you can think of is love, love, love. <laughs> so it's kind of um, nice. I don't suffer from that problem. Do you have that problem, Micah? What's that? The... Do you think of love, love? No, no, why I, wouldn't that, you? That didn't cross my mind at all when I was why? reading. I didn't. I though, well, no. I mean, definitely, there's a bit of foreshadowing, but the whole that that, that song didn't play in my head. Are you talking about? Oh, well, is I'm that like sorry, a, the Beatles geez. love, or are you talking about? All right. Well, well, it, like, regardless, I saw love, and I'm sure our listeners did too. Um, so the game begins, and Lee Jordan provides commentary, but keeps veering off point, and McGonagall repeatedly yells at him on mic, which. It was kind of unprofessional McGonagall to do, but it was also very funny <laughs> to read because McGonagall, you know, all caps writing and stop yeah. it. Everybody's stoked about the fireball. Lee Jordan can't stop talking about it. Well, I mean, Lee Jordan is usually biased, though, in, in his commentating abilities, that's for sure, uh, especially during yeah. uh, the later chapter that we're going to go through with Gryffindor and Slytherin. So uh, she's... She's got her head in the right place, though, get, getting after Lee, because she wants him to try and be as impartial as possible. It's a very good thing to have a Gryffindor doing the announcing, too. Like, imagine if it were a Slytherin. I don't think it'd be entertaining. No, it wouldn't. Yeah. But I, it would be cool to see, like, a teacher commentate, like uh, like McGonagall or like Dumbledore. I don't know. It could be kind of funny. <laughs> or Trelawney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was, it was, I have consulted the inner Doesn't eye. Luna take over in the later books? Yes. Yeah. She and must she's put not people funny. to sleep, though. I mean, her <laughs> yeah, vo- she, the way her voice is. Well, she's got the hat. I think the lion hat keeps everybody awake because it threatens to eat them if they fall asleep. During the match, Harry spots three black hooded figures he believes are Dementors and sends an Expecto Patronum at them. And he's able to conjure a very large one. And he doesn't even think of it. He just sends the spell and is on his way. Now, he does this with a lot of courage, and I think partially because, as as is described in the book, he's got his adrenaline going, but also because, quite simply, they're not Dementors, so he's not really, you know, he's not really losing any energy because they're really not Dementors. It's not said what his Patronus is, but you, he, he hears the sound of hooves. He flies away as he casts this Patronus, and, it, you know, something very large erupts. There's hooves coming out. You know, Harry can't see what it is, and in fact, I don't think he does see what it is until very much later. But I'm pretty sure that anyone else can see actually what his Patronus, what form it takes um, at this point. And nobody mentions it to him afterwards, except Lupin, who says, that's quite a Patronus. 
So it's very interesting because, you know, you'd think there'd be like the whole school walking up to him like, why is your Patronus a horse? What's the deal? You know? Yeah. That right. You'd think so. Just like when he speaks parcel tongue and everybody's yeah. scared of him. Um, so he captures the snitch shortly after this, and after the game learns that they weren't Dementors, they were actually Malfoy, Crab, Goyle, and Marcus. Now, a few points about all this. Uh, we talked about Harry's adrenaline, but I think this also sort of taught him a good lesson, that if he's really pumped up and means it, he can do it. He can cast the Patronus. Patronus. Um, and I was reading the notes about this chapter on the Harry Potter lexicon, and everyone at the stadium, this is a good point, everyone at the stadium probably sees what shape Harry's Patronus takes, um, the stag. So why did Lupin use this as Harry's security question in Order of the Phoenix? Do you think that was a little uh, oh. mistake that Joe made? Actually, I think that's probably tr- that's probably a mistake. Yeah, she must have forgotten about it, I guess. So is it Order of the Phoenix that he asked him? Because what's the situation in Order of the Phoenix where he asks him? It's when um, the advance guard arrives at uh, Privet Drive. Lupin asks and, Harry what form does his Patronus take. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think that was just a little oversight by Joe, but that's okay. Minor thing. Minor thing. Okay. Um, and finally, my final point about this was, what was Malfoy thinking? If he shows up as a Dementor with his friends, obviously some action against those alleged Dementors is going to be taken, probably yeah. in the form yeah. of a spell, because everybody just wants to take him down. And shoot Expecto Patronum at him. So what? I mean, he, he is. He, yeah, he's lucky he didn't get like defendoed or uh, what's the what's the really bad one that uh, Ginny uses and it just disintegrates like walls of prophecies. Yeah, yeah, it's just ridiculous. And I I always feel bad for him. Reductive. You know, c- considering Thanks. how damn stupid it is. So, um, moving along, the Gryffindor students hold a party in their dormitory, and. Uh, Though the only one not celebrating is Hermione, of course. She tells Harry she has a lot of studying to do, and Ron doesn't want her to join. So, when Harry asks Ron about it, Ron says he's not bothered, that she's not sorry. And this upsets Hermione, who runs up to her room. And I sort of think this is evidence that Ron doesn't feel very much affection at all for Hermione at this point in their lives. Because if he did, there would be some level of remorse. But here, there's just nothing. I mean, he loves Scabbers more, more than he loves in her, more than he loves Hermione. Yes, you can have affection for your pet, but you know, pet versus Hermione and holding a grudge for this long—I don't know. It, it just yeah. doesn't feel right. Well, I think some of it has to do with the fact that she's not showing any remorse either. You know, she doesn't seem to be upset at the fact that Scabbers is gone and that her cat possibly killed him. I mean. All the evidence is against Crookshanks in this case, as you mentioned earlier. So I think part of the problem is that Ron uh, would like to see Hermione possibly admit that for once she may be wrong. Yeah. So it's it's driven the emotion out of him that she is so, you know, steady against the idea. So you're saying if he does feel anything for her, you know, he has to, quote, be strong to kind of head her off because she is a know-it-all and she is not admitting at this this moment where she killed the thing he loved, this pet. Yeah, and, and you know, is he it- aggravates her a number of times throughout the series in, in this kind of emotional way. You saw what happened in, in Sorcerer's Stone uh, when she runs off to the bathroom. Uh, and gets attacked by the troll. Happens in this book, not as big of consequences. Happens in Goblet of Fire, uh, the night of the Yule Ball. It happens in Half-Blood Prince with everything that goes on with uh, uh, Lavender. So yeah. it, he does it a lot, and I don't think he realizes, in probably until 
you know, well into Half Blood Prince that that he really does like her. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's a good. It's a good thing it's good that you brought this up, Andrew, too, because I think that you know what you were saying about it. Ron not being at that level where he really has like deeper feelings that he could put, you know, his love for his pet aside, and you know, either give her the benefit of the doubt or at least feel bad for her that her pet, you know, killed her. Like any of those adult feelings, like is not Ron at this point. Uh, and I think that you're very right about that. Like that's it's kind of slow going for for Ron's emotional yeah. maturity. All right, so as we move along through this chapter, um, they head to bed, and Harry trips into a dream. And this dream is some more foreshadowing. Boy, do I love foreshadowing! Here's the description of the, the dream from Joe's writing. Quote, He was walking through a forest with his firebolt over his shoulder, following something silvery white. It was winding its way through the trees ahead, and he could only catch glimpses of it between the leaves. Anxious to catch up with it, he sped up. But as they moved faster, so did his quarry. Harry broke into a run, and he heard hooves gathering speed. Now he was running flat, and ahead he could hear galloping. Then he turned the corner into the clearing, and... Ah! Dream cut! So, as Mariana, 23 of Mexico City, points out, she wrote into us about this, What happens there is pretty much the silver doe scene, isn't it? And I wonder if Harry is having visions of the future in his dreams. And of course... She's right. It's definitely some foreshadowing towards the end of the book, right? Seeing his no, stag. Wait, the oh yeah. Well, is she saying that it's foreshadowing for the book or foreshadowing be, or like a scene out of book six or yeah, book seven? Sorry, is she saying it relates to the end of this book or that silver doe scene in book seven? Well, I guess you could. You could I think both. Both, yeah. I mean, it, nobody brought up the ending scene and or one of the ending scenes as you just pointed out. That's obviously. A tie in there too, but I think she's going for the uh, the scene in Deathly Hollows. Yeah, because I mean, I, I I took this to read. You know, he's trying to find his father, basically. Like even even the, you know, I was thinking earlier in the chapter, he cast this Patronus. Everybody but him saw it. Nobody's bringing it up to him. He doesn't know what form his you know Patronus takes. He doesn't know the significance behind it yet either. So I, I you know I think this whole thing was like kind of in search of his own identity in a way that he's you know twisting through the woods and. You know, trying to f- looking for his dad as he ends up flat out doing. You know, right. he's sure that he saw his dad at the the other side of the lake by the end of the book. Yeah, th- this is not the first time though that we've seen this. We saw it in Sorcerer's Stone. There was a dream that Harry has that kind of uh, foreshadows what happens on the astronomy tower. So it it was mm. it, it's wasn't he chasing Quirrell's turban? It, yeah, there was like uh, a, a flash of green light and a high cackling laugh, and like Draco turned into oh, Snape no. or something like that. And, Whoa! It, yeah, there's his dreams were much trippier back when he was doing acid. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you look at what happens with Dumbledore on the astronomy tower, you know, Draco leads the way to Snape. There's a flash of green light, and Dumbledore gets killed. So ah, fascinating. Yeah, cool. I think there is a lot in, in his dreams throughout the series. So, uh, well, it's a great connection. The reason the dream was suddenly cut off, who knows what else we, we, we would have learned in that dream, come to think of it. Uh, he's awoken by Ron, who claims to have seen Sirius over his bed with a knife. And Ron's panic ends up waking, you know, the others in the room. And nobody really believes him at first, so Ron shows the slashed curtains as evidence of Sirius's appearance. Um, they head down into the common room, and McGonagall shows up, confirms with Sir Cadigan... That he indeed let Sirius in, and Sirius had gotten a hold of Neville's list of portrait passwords. Doi! Now, 
what's the deal here? Uh, couldn't Sirius have, you know, researched this a little better? I mean, he's walking around, all the kids are asleep. He had plenty of time to figure out which bed was actually Harry's. Um, you know, don't they have the suitcases right by their beds that have the initials on them? Do you guys, well, he wasn't, Sirius- he wasn't looking for Harry. He wasn't. Remember, he was actually, he got the right bed because he was looking for scabbers. Peter Pettigrew. Oh, he was expecting right. scabbers to be under like Ron's arm or something. Like, so he, he had the right bed. It's just that scabbers was presumed dead at that point. Still though, very unprofessional of Sirius to just go in. I oh, mean, yeah. obviously oh, he yeah, was going to wake Ron up. That was, that was a absolutely. bit silly. He's not the smartest. He should have gotten, he should have gotten Crookshanks to like, Get the rat, drag him out to like somewhere where he could like kill him and have some privacy at least. You know, what do you think it was going to do? Stab the rat and walk yeah. away? I, yeah, that would be way too easy. The other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, Sirius is very emotionally driven. He's, he's, he's still unstable at this point because he doesn't really know that Harry will even ever, you know, know the truth about, uh, his innocence. At this point, he's really unstable. All he wants is, like, revenge, you know, to commit the crime he was in prison for, da 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 da, da. So all he's really trying to do is, is to kill Pettigrew at this point. He's very emotional. He's not thinking things through. All right, well, let's move on to Chapter 14, Snape's Grudge. <sighs> Sirius Black's attack on Hogwarts brings higher security. Uh, Professor Flitwick is teaching the front doors of Hogwarts to recognize a picture of Sirius. I wonder what else the front doors of Hogwarts can learn how to do. Like, I don't know, play blackjack? Tap dance. Um, tap dance? Cook. Cook. That yes, is pretty funny the how they can te- he can teach the front doors to recognize a picture of Sirius. <laughs> I bet they tell awesome jokes. <laughs> Uh, etc 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 um and also security trolls are hired to protect the fat lady first of all sir cadigan is fired because even though there was a whole list of passwords da 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 cadigan's just not that fit in the bill they expertly restore the cra- the fat lady and she is now being guarded by trolls uh, also nobody is able is allowed to give neville the password that's an interesting point i wanted to bring up because it's kind of it's really harsh like Neville, you know, Sir Cadigan was making these really ridiculous passwords to begin with. You know, nobody could, nobody with a decent memory could remember them easily. And Neville, you know, Professor McGonagall strictly forbids anybody from telling McGonagall, or Neville the password. He has to wait until another Gryffindor comes, you know, by and lets him into the common room every time he wants to go in. Right. It's definitely, uh, you feel bad for Neville. There's no question about it. I mean, he's been picked on pretty much all throughout the series to this point. And the the even harsher side of it is that Neville would never have wanted for anything to come of you know him writing down the passwords in the sense of, of harming Harry or anybody else. So it's kind of a double whammy for him. Yeah. And to think that, you know, he's he was put, putting his friends in danger. Right. I mean, that must be horrible. And it's just in his character to be forgetful like that and to be clumsy like that. So he really can't change. And it's sad. it's sad. I mean, he does, you know, strengthen throughout the books. And of course, book seven, when he ends up taking on a leadership role. Um, yeah. Would you argue it's like as a result of this kind of stuff where he's like, you know, I need to do the right thing for everybody. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it helped him a bit. I think build inner character. I mean, you know, the, all these kids are still young at, at this point in prisoner of Azkaban. So, it's not surprising that a kid would be forgetful, but at the same time, you know, Neville takes it to a new extreme. <laughs> yeah, well, he is bested true. by so, a cat. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Neville, yeah, is best. But I wonder if Trevor had anything to do with the list of missing passwords. No, maybe, I don't think so. Maybe Sirius the dog is... No, no. Okay, well, those are the two main security things that's mentioned, or three main security things. You know, nobody is talking to Neville. They have somebody guard the fat lady, and the, the front doors can now recognize a picture of Sirius... I don't know. Um, do you think any of these measures would work, though? Because we know, first of all, that no. Sirius isn't using the front doors. Exactly. And the interesting thing, you know, especially after later on in this chapter, um, which is actually about Snape, and it's called Snape's Grudge, this chapter, we actually learn that Lupin, you know, n- we find the Marauder's Map, Lupin finds it, he knows about all these passageways you know, in and out of Hogwarts, and he hasn't come forward to Dumbledore, and he still hasn't come forward to Dumbledore. I know we got a muggle mail, too, about Sirius Black being an yeah, Animagus. Well, let's just clear that up right now so we don't have to go through the email later. I made the mistake on last week's show saying that Dumbledore should have been aware of Sirius and dog form because he knew about all of these guys as being uh, Animagi during uh, their time at Hogwarts, when in fact we find out later on in the book that that's not true. So... Uh, Lupin was actually keeping this information from Dumbledore. So Lupin is kind of, I mean, this really brings the question up to Lupin, because at this point, a student, like, Lupin doesn't know Sirius is innocent, and he continues to not know until, you know, a few chapters from now. And the fact that Sirius was, was seen with a knife over Ron, presumably with a knife over Harry, look, Lupin doesn't want Harry's to come to any harm. Why, at this point, a knife over the student in the Gryffindor common room? Would he, would he not come forward with this? That Sirius is actually, you know, a dog, uh, at times, and knows all these extra passageways that even Filch doesn't know about. Yeah, I think it's, this is a huge mistake on, on Lupin's part, and I know, uh, clearly he has a very good idea of how Sirius could be getting into Hogwarts. So it, it really makes you wonder why, knowing Lupin's character, and, and Lupin himself even thinking that, uh, Sirius was responsible for what happened to the Potters. Uh, that he wouldn't come forward and say something. That he wouldn't reveal uh, information about the castle that's absolutely vital uh, to uh, protecting the students. It seems too like if if Lupin did come forward, there would and not only would there be no book, etc. You know, it's a common thing to say, but that actually seems like that would probably effectively stop any more attempts on, you know, Sirius gaining entry to the castle. That said, Sirius doesn't really break back into the castle after this this time. I mean, everything else happens more or less on the grounds yeah. and or out of Hogwarts. Yeah. So, regardless, um the next morning Ron is more popular than Harry for the first time ever. It is said. Um Ron is retelling the story of how he woke up and there was Sirius Black the mass murderer, crazy dirty hair, da da da. And Ron's really more popular now, so he loves telling the story, etc. But privately to Harry, they really wonder why Sirius Black didn't just, you know, kill Ron. Once he found out that he had the wrong bed or whatever, why didn't he just get rid of Ron and move on to clearly his intended target of Harry? So they're they're starting to piece together that that something is just not quite right with this with this whole thing because uh Harry mentions that he has no problem killing innocent people. He killed those thirteen muggles on that crowded street a while ago, you know? I mean what what's the deal? Um so Harry and Ron are kind of starting to piece things together um at this point that there there's definitely something odd about what happened. Yeah. Uh, maybe it, it he was should just taken aback and he was crazy. It should start becoming more clear now. I mean, you're not killing Ron, it's like, hello. 
Ron and Harry do go to Hagrid's and they see his ugly purple suit. Um, and he reminds them that Buckbeak's trial is coming up. Uh, it's interesting. He mentions that they're going to go to London to hear the case, but he doesn't mention the Ministry of Magic. But I wanted to say, obviously, they're going to the Ministry of Magic to hear the case, right? The same way Harry went to trial Probably. in book five. Yeah. I mean, because he says we're going to London to hear it, and he's wearing a suit. It just seems like it would be the same place. So it's interesting that it, that the Ministry of Magic is not specifically mentioned by Hagrid. Whereas in book two, he's like, oh, not Azkaban prison, and, you know, we know where he's going. Um, so I don't know. That's just, he's emotional. It doesn't really matter. Um, Hagrid actually says that Hermione has helped uh, prepare the case for him. Uh, Ron and Harry kind of feel bad about, A, not helping Hagrid. And he actually makes them feel really bad about... Um, Hermione and about treating Hermione badly because he tells Ron that she really cares about, um, you know, scabbers and everything. Um, it's really cool so, though, actually seeing that Hermione helped him out, you know, it yeah. was really nice and yeah. totally a perfect match. You know, yeah. Hagrid obviously the, isn't capable of getting that stuff together. So Hermione's sort of the, the lawyer for him. It's a shame. It's a shame. They're so biased, you know, against Hagrid because um, yeah. apparently she, you know, dug through cases and found, you know, good bits in which people oh, like yeah. Malfoy were stupid gits. And yeah, I'm sure she did a great know, job. Deserve what they got. Yeah. I'm sure it was really cool. Um, so actually, there's a Hogsmeade week- weekend coming up. They finish up with Hagrid, and they find out there's a Hogsmeade weekend. This is getting into the heart of the chapter here, Snape's grudge. Um, Neville, uh, Harry, you know, says goodbye to Ron, pretends like they're not about to see each other in 15 minutes. And uh, Harry goes to the Statue of the One-Eyed Witch, grabs his invisibility cloak, because he does want a little extra protection. Things are kind of getting scary at Hogwarts. And uh, lo and behold, Neville finds him. Uh, and says, hey, Harry. And Harry has a difficult time shaking Neville. Uh, But before he can even shake Neville, Snape finds both of them and sends them to Gryffindor Tower. So here's Harry. He wants to go to Hogsmeade to, you know, hang around, check out Zonko's for the first time. And Snape finds them right outside the One-Eyed Witch statue. Uh, And he kind of lingers. After Harry and Neville go up to the Gryffindor Tower, he he lingers around the One-Eyed Witch statue, kind of prodding it, trying to get it to do stuff, see if there's any significance of where they're meeting. He seemed to think they they were meeting. Um, So I just thought that was interesting. You know, Snape, obviously, with, you know, with his bias, doesn't put anything past Harry and guesses correctly so that Harry is, you know, up to no good. Well, he does have the ability to read minds. I mean... I think it probably extends beyond sort of the legitimacy that that we see uh, him use against Harry uh, in in Order of the Phoenix. I think you know, obviously Harry would have felt sort of the mind penetration if it was as effective as it was in Order of the Phoenix. But I still think Snape has that ability. Uh, to sort of casually read minds and and to know what Harry is up to, uh, so I think that plays a little bit of a role in it. Yeah, especially later when there's um, yeah, I'll get into that in a minute. Um, Harry and Ron do go to you know Hogsmeade. They visit the post office um, where smaller owls are labeled local deliveries only. And I just rem- you know remember throughout the series having smaller owls only able to travel so far, etc. It's it's beautiful. That's so that cute. She's done this. Local deliveries only. This little, little owl little... can only go local. <laughs> yeah, Stay in this zip owl. code, please. Postal code. Yeah. 
Exactly. Little owls for little deliveries, and big owls for, like, transcontinental... I want a local delivery owl. Yeah, it's a little one. Yeah. (laughs) With little tiny... Alright. They go to the Shrieking Shack, actually. Harry and Ron go to the Shrieking Shack. And we're reminded that it's the most haunted dwelling in Britain... What is J.K. Rowling, here's my note here, what is she saying about this? Because, you know, it's been hyped up that the most haunted dwelling in Britain is actually in Hogsmeade. Uh, it's the Shrieking Shack. But we know later in the, you know, from later in the book, there's actually nothing haunted about the, the Shrieking Shack. It's actually all a ruse that Dumbledore concocts so that Remus Lupin would have had a safe place to stay when he transformed into a werewolf. He's got the Hogwarts ghosts all talking about it, saying, you know, there's a rough crowd that lives there, which they're not lying about the Marauders. But at the same time, you know, they're really, you know, hyping this up. The the Shrieking Shack, do you guys think, I mean, what, what do you guys think about this? Because it's the most haunted building in Britain, but it's not haunted at all. Well, I mean, what do you mean what I think of it? I don't know. I don't well, know. what is I the think, most I think I, uh, haunted building in London? Is it the Tower of London? Or could I, am I wrong yeah, there? Yeah, I would say so. Um, the dungeons of the Tower of London, uh, I would something say. Something like that, yeah. So, it, I don't know. It, it's weird to me, though, that it got passed off sort of as the most haunted place in Britain because uh, Lupin was only there for four years. So, in, in, unless he used that as a place of refuge post-Hogwarts, I, I don't remember if that was the case or not. But That's a good point. If it's only haunted, quote-unquote, for four years, I mean, that's a, that's a little difficult for, for me to buy into. But again, if it's one of those things where it gets passed on from, you know, generation to generation, student to student about how haunted it is, you know, and I'm sure Dumbledore could conjure a few uh, spells to uh, to make it sound haunted. To make it sound haunted. Yeah, it's a good point. Well, even like, you know, I figured, you know, with Aberforth being in the Hogshead, you know, also being like on the Hogsmeade side of things to further perpetuate rumors. But like you said, they only really needed it for four years, or sorry, seven years when, or whenever Remus came, I think it was in his third year, so four years, yeah. Whenever he came to, to Hogwarts that, uh, you know, they only needed it for four years, so perhaps they could have said it about it being haunted around the time and then... You know, it could have died off, or maybe, you know, they planted the Whomping Willow there, too, just for that particular reason. So, it's very interesting, you know, to say if they ever needed it again, then they have that ruse, Um, of course. So, I thought that was interesting. Now we get into the heart of the chapter, which I have so many subplots, I'm just going to skip right through. Um, Malfoy shows up. He starts taunting Ron. Uh, Harry, who's still under the invisibility cloak, hits uh, Malfoy with mud. Or it's actually described as sludge. It's green. I I, I don't know. Um, hits Malfoy and Crab and Goyle. And it's actually better in the book than it is in the movie, I think. Um, I think in the movie, doesn't he pull their pants down or something? Yeah, well, it was one snow, of first of all. I mean, that's one of the biggest differences. Yeah. And I did like the snow idea. It made it... I guess it was more visually, it was visually pleasing compared to yeah. the mud. It would have just been nasty. So the snow was a little <laughs> nice touch, I thought. Yeah. Um, so, okay. I, I just have it here that, uh, basically Malfoy, 
Um, I think it's, it's Crab or Goyle trip over Harry, and for a split second, Harry's head is visible, kind of like in book six yeah. on train. Um, but Harry, you know, Malfoy knows that Harry's there and immediately storms off to the castle. And the problem is that Harry has actually got to put the cloak back on and try and get to Hogwarts before Malfoy does. The problem is that Harry's going through some underground passageway. It's, you know, he's very pressed for time. He has to run back and he goes through the passageway, ends up, you know, in the same hallway where Snape found him earlier, outside the One-Eyed Witch statue, Snape finds him again at the same spot, and basically it's it's very tense moment because Harry knows that Malfoy has actually beaten him back to the castle and told Snape, went directly to the head of his house, Snape, and who has a grudge against Harry, and told him about uh, Harry being in Hogsmeade when he shouldn't be. So uh, this is a you know the heart of the chapter. It's a very tense few pages in which everything relies on exactly what people say and when they say it. So Snape supposes that Harry was in Hogsmeade and he doesn't believe that Ron got his Zonko stuff a while ago. Uh, he talks about James Potter and this is you know Snape his his textbook uh, Snape uh, you know guilt um, anger about James Potter and his arrogance. Uh, he actually he does have a point here though because he brings up that all these people care about Harry's safety and he just completely ignores that. I mean Harry's being kind of careless. Uh, Lupin lays it on a little bit heavier, but it's the same deal, and it it, it means a lot when when Lupin tells it, but it, it doesn't mean anything when when Snape's uh, telling it to Harry because Snape is going about it the wrong way, is saying that his father was so arrogant, etc., etc. And Harry actually brings up the story that we heard in book one about how one time James Potter saved Snape's life. Um, unfortunately, Snape is able to turn that against Harry even further and make him feel worse because he says that James Potter was only saving his own skin. Uh, so he's no hero, he's still the arrogant loser that everybody thought was so special, but he wasn't, etc. Yeah, uh, and this is Harry and Harry and Snape get into it really deeply, like right here. Yeah, I was gonna say this is like the first time they get into this deep sort of thing where we're we're learning about Snape's interaction or relationship with James, and it was it was it was interesting, and it was also kind of sad because you're because Harry seeing that James wasn't you know this perfect person. I mean, I don't know if Harry ever saw him as a perfect person, but he did regard him highly. And here's Snape talking trash on him. And his dad can't defend himself. And he'll never hear the truth, really. He may hear other stories from other people. But, you know, here's Snape who's uh, uh, um, putting a negative light on his dad. And it must suck. It's it's kind of interesting to me, though, too, that Snape has a problem with Harry because he sees so much of James from a from a negative standpoint, Sirius has that problem from a positive standpoint. Yeah, good point. That's a really good point. Sorry, I smiled. You don't have to be sorry. <laughs> Let's all bask in the glory of Micah's good points. <laughs> yeah, you're. You no, know, you're totally right. And um, I, I remember reading this for the first time. Uh, and you know, this was a chapter. This is the chapter that's dedicated to Snape. I'm sure, was there one or two chapters already dedicated just to Snape? I mean, like the Potions Master in book one. Yeah. But this is, this is Snape's grudge. Yeah, this, this is, is Sna- this is deep Snape. This is. Reading this, and I felt that Snape was a horrible, like a villain. Like, not as much as I, I felt about Umbridge, but I could tell that Snape, this is one I knew that, you know, as I'm sure everybody else did, that, that Snape was going to be a really pivotal role. 
I think, um, just because he, he and Harry directly go at it. They're like, they're like equals, you know. Even though yeah. Snape is the the older and but the, Snape yeah, behaves like just, a child. That's the thing. That's true too, but not. I mean, I think Snape has a Snape just has a way about him. Snape asks Harry to turn out his pockets, and uh, Harry and he finds the map. And he can't get it to read anything until he shouts at it and says, I demand you tell me all your secrets. I, Severus Snape, da-da-da. Okay, so the map... Uh, this was hilarious in the book. You guys all remember first reading this. This is unbelievable. Um, do you think that Snape recognizes the names, though? Because after he can't get the map to do much, he calls Lupin. And uh, Lupin's like, well, I don't know what the map is. Clearly a Zonko's product. You found it with his other stuff. And... I guess, like, Snape reacts weirdly, because he asked Lupin, do you think he got it directly from the manufacturers? And, you know, he's talking about Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, and it's interesting, because just how Snape behaves, it sounds like he recognizes that Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs were the nicknames of the Marauders, and that, you know, it just seems like he should know, but he kind of holds off on elaborating on whether or not they, you know, were actually, Remus was the one who actually called himself... Mooney, I, it's just so interesting because old school friends, and you've got this Marauder's map that is uh, in the middle of them, and it, it's a very emotionally charged chapter to begin with. And then you have this this old school memories. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's very um, it's very funny reading the responses to on the map. <laughs> it's very yeah. well written. Yeah. Um. So actually, Lupin, uh, they do. You know, Lupin's able to get Harry and Ron. You know, with the help of Ron. Out of Snape's hair for, th- for this this time, uh, but he does tell him that he's confiscating the map. He says, "I know it's a map. I know who've made it. Uh, I know who made it. I know these people." He says they met at some point, um, and he says that uh, Lupin, or he says that the map was confiscated by Filch a long time ago. But you know what, Lupin here is so full of you know what because yeah. he knows number one that Sirius knows the map anyway. So it wouldn't be any sort of an aid in the hands of Sirius Black. That's actually that's very true. So I mean, the point from the beginning of this chapter, you know, why hasn't Lupin told Dumbledore about all these secret passageways that him and Sirius both know about? It comes to a head here because now he's trying to make Harry feel like crap, and yet Siri, you know, he like you say, Micah, he already knows the passageways. Yeah. So the password so list is in fact more dangerous than the map is. <laughs> How ironic. <laughs> the only thing is the, you know, Harry and Ron, they feel horrible. Uh, Ron even tries to cheer Harry up walking up the steps and nothing's really working. And to top it all off, they get to the top of the stairway and Hermione says that Hagrid and Buckbeak lost their trial. No! All yep. right, next chapter. He Pretty much was that. their hippogriff. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we get moving to the next chapter, the Quidditch final, and and we really move away from the story that uh, we have been talking about, the sort of the Marauder backstory. And as Eric mentioned, we learn that they've lost their trial, and actually the Buckbeak has been sentenced to be executed. Uh, and uh, according to Hagrid, the committee is in Lucius Malfoy's pocket, and this is not really the first time that that we see sort of his influence of power. In Chamber of Secrets, he's responsible for getting Hagrid sent to Azkaban and Dumbledore removed from power in Order of the Phoenix. He develops sort of this uh, 
deep relationship with the Minister of Magic, and you can tell that he's really influencing him. So uh, interesting to see that, that that Malfoy has this power, and, and it, it's sort of laying the groundwork for what he's going to do later on in the series. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't fun to read either, just knowing that he has this much influence. It's just it's just sad. <sighs> yeah. And definitely a sign of how things at the Ministry are, too. Not just a sign of, you know, things that come with uh, Lucius, but you know, the ministry just being swayed by him. Right. Yeah, uh, by, a, by Fudge as an incompetent by a death you know, eater. theater. Yeah, and, and I think this was sort of a, a nod, in a way, to maybe how J.K. Rowling feels about the political system and, and how oh, politicians can get paid off. So uh, that's just kind of another interesting thing there. But one thing that we didn't mention, um, and this goes back to what we were talking about in the first chapter with, with Ron and Hermione... Ron actually goes ahead and agrees to help uh, with the appeals process for Buckbeak. And this, of course, makes Hermione very happy. So you have sort of that reunion there. Um, it's sort of a, a powerful moment, I guess. Yeah. So uh, they end up leaving Hagrid's after learning about the execution. And uh, they go up uh, to the castle. And Hermione and the rest of them uh, encounter Draco. And Draco's making light of Hagrid's situation. And, of course, this is the scene in the films that a lot of people like, where Hermione punches Draco, but in the book, right. she, she slaps him. Right. Uh, a little bit different, uh, but uh, the point uh, is made nonetheless. Pleasing, either way you read it. Uh, did you guys worry here at kick. all that there would be a little bit of uh, retribution on Draco's point? Maybe he would... Uh, cast a spell against her, do something to her. Maybe not then, in the but movie, later on. I, in the movie, I think he should have, because she punched him straight in the face. But in the movie, he comes off as, as a scaredy cat. Yeah, I think you he know? was yeah. shocked. So, I think he was yeah. legitimately surprised that that happened, and I guess, you know, it's probably not so good to to have to talk about getting punched in the face by a girl. Well, like, that's the interesting, like, even in the movie, when she has her wand at him, that's when she can do the most damage. And he's, oh, yeah. like, scared, and he should be. Exactly. But then she punches him, and it's like, well, okay. <laughs> but when she slapped him in the book, it was, you know, like you say, it was a very tense moment. Hermione, obviously, you know, slapping Draco for being such a, a douche. But, yeah. you know, um, girls can slap guys. Guys can never slap a girl. And as as messed up as Draco is, I think he still keeps that moral at least. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so they end up going off to class. Hermione steps aside for a minute, and then she never shows up uh, to Charms. And uh, I think what is probably the only time that Hermione was at Hogwarts, she ends up missing a class, uh, which uh, Harry and Ron find out about a little bit later on. And, and it describes her as having bags under her eyes like Lupin. And I thought that was a little bit of another hint towards... Lupin's uh, condition, I guess you could say, and that's revealed later on in the book. So another little Hermione's subtle hint. Into a werewolf. Yeah, a little bit of a subtle hint there. Um, and then uh, they all, they all three of them go off to divination, and this is kind of the showdown uh, between Hermione and Professor Trelawney. And I wanted to know: is is this a result? Did you think of her being tired and agitated? Or just not believing a thing Trelawney has to say, or both. Because they, both. The, I guess I should say they get into it because uh, Trelawney sees the grim again, and Hermione's fed up with it. <laughs> so you think it's both? 
Yeah, I mean, because, listen, these past few chapters, Hermione's been having a horrible time. That's true. <laughs> so, it's it's sort of been a build-up. And, yeah. um, you know, also, obviously, we've heard Hermione talk about how crazy you think she thinks Trelawney is. So, yeah, definitely both. Yeah. Yeah, Hermione's missing it. You know, she forgot to go back in time and retake that class. Uh, I think it's, it's definitely both. And she finally got her friends back. You know, and here's here's Trelawney making Harry, for no other reason than her own you know, prestige, uh, to making Harry feel like he's going to die again. You know, Hermione's had enough, so she yeah. storms out. Well, I also think it has something to do with what Trelawney called Hermione, and she said, you know, that she was somebody whose mind is so hopelessly mundane. And in this day and age, I don't think a teacher would get away with saying something like that to a student. No. That's, that's mudslinging, though. That's like, yeah, you're right, but at the same time, it's one... I, yeah, never mind. Just edit out what I said. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the question that follows that is kind of similar to the one that I asked, you know, coming into it. You know, does Hermione leave the class more so because Trelawney insults her personally um, as opposed to her just not really putting any faith into divination? Both, again. You think it's I mean, both? Yeah, I mean... It, uh, but it, it's it's a subject. It's it had to be like breaking her heart, or you know, most people in order to make a Horcrux need to kill somebody because that splits your soul. I think Hermione. I think the split Hermione's soul, uh, leaving a leaving a class. I think that that's. Yeah. I think that's what I, well, happened. I think a lot of her uh, not believing in divination as legitimate also has to do a lot with McGonagall, but that might be something to discuss yeah. at a later time. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we, we learn a little bit more about Trelawney's predictions as it's pointed out that around Easter, one of our number will leave us forever. And that uh, did end up coming true with Hermione leaving And uh, which the class. student points that out in the book? I forget who it was. I think but it's she Lavender. Goes, she goes, ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> or, I, no, you may have made that mistake before. You said it was Lavender when it was Parvati. So I'm just going to guess it was Parvati. It wasn't me who said that. <laughs> no. I think it was you. Oh, was it? Was it me? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, no, actually, you're right. You're right. You're right. And uh, the, the, the point I wanted to bring up about the uh, the Grim, though, uh, you know, Harry, Harry, Andrew just mentioned it before. Uh, but, I mean, despite sort of her subpar reputation, Trelawney's not off base. She's ser- seeing Sirius Black. Yeah. So yeah. she's not the- really that bad of a seer, despite you know, the reputation that she has. Right. Exactly. She misinterprets, she sees the signs, but she misinterprets them. It's like, you know, it's an interesting character flaw to have where everybody thinks it's the Grimm. They're actually just seeing a black dog that, you know, the Grimm is a black dog, but a black dog is not necessarily the Grimm. And she's seeing Sirius Black. Sirius Black is getting entry to the castle. And I, I mean, if Trelawney could crack the case, she would learn that Sirius was an animagus far before Lupin ever came around and started telling Dumbledore. Right. You know, she could have been the right hand. And uh, for the record, it was Lavender who said that. I just looked it up. Who said, ooh, okay. ooh, ooh! <laughs> All right. I win. So anyway, <laughs> uh, the tensions around Hogwarts start to rise uh, as the... Uh, final Quidditch match of the year draws closer. Uh, Grif- Gryffindor versus Slytherin. And uh, did, I wanted to ask you guys: Did you have similar experiences in in high school and college with with these sporting events? You know, maybe you're playing a rival uh, coming up, uh, and uh, the school just kind of really gets into it, and the, all you talk <laughs> about is beating, you know, your crosstown rival or your conference rival, whatever it may be. 
Yeah, but yeah. I mean, the way they sort of take it to, I don't know, maybe I just was in the wrong school, but they, they take it to new levels in Hogwarts. I mean, it's just very intense. <laughs> well, it's it's <laughs> a bit like soccer, though, is over there, right? Or or football, as they call it, uh, you know, over in over in England. So, you know, they're very passionate about the uh, the sporting sides of things. So, Harry is uh, w- wakes up early in the morning of the Quidditch match. And uh, he sees Crookshanks out the window talking to a gigantic, shaggy black dog. And he asks the logical question, the question uh, if Crookshanks could see the dog, too, or talk to the dog, how could it be an omen of his death? And why didn't he tell anyone? Why didn't Harry tell anybody that he's now seen? Yeah. Is that what your question is? Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. You know, people have had this disambiguation where it's like, I don't know if that's the right term, but where they, you know, mistake the Grim for the the dog, and now he sees Crookshanks can see it too. I I think he's still trying to figure it out. You know, why didn't he tell anybody? That's a good question. He likes to keep know. these things to to himself. We always wonder why he didn't say this to anyone or why he didn't say that. He just likes to keep stuff to himself. And when it deals with his own well being, he kind of tries to figure it out on his own. Yeah. So. We get to uh, the morning of the Quidditch match now, and they're down at breakfast, and Harry ends up blushing when he sees Cho Chang, and she wishes him good luck before the match. And this goes back to what Andrew was talking about, you know, in, in his chapter with a little bit of the foreshadowing of the relationship that's to develop between the two of them. And then we get into the actual match, and, and this is really one of the the only books where we get, you know, Quidditch as intense uh, as it ever Scribed. is, yeah, throughout <laughs> yeah. the course of the series. I mean, because I think you know we have Gr- uh, Gryffindor play all three uh, other houses, and it's described in detail. You know, first with with Cedric Diggory, then with Cho Chang, now with them playing against Slytherin. So, uh, you know, this is just a dirty match across the board, and it's it's just one of those games. Like if you watch a football game on TV, that's just you know. Say, I know the weather wasn't terrible in this match, but, you know, if it's, like, raining hardcore and the field is a mess and, you know, they're hitting each other after they're ta- done tackling and, you know, it's really one of those rivalry grind-out games. That's exactly what this matchup was like. Hmm. Yeah, so it was who fun wins, to read. Who wins? Uh, Gryffindor yeah, who wins? wins, of course. Yay! Hmm. And that wraps up chapter by chapter for this week. I think we have about three more episodes worth of chapter-by-chapter segments for Prisoner of Azkaban. And then we'll be just about around our 200th episode, and it'll be a fun time. That's awesome. Yeah. So, last week we were talking about Patronus, or last episode we were talking about Patronuses. We asked people to send in their responses, what Patronuses they think we would all be. Um, Jake13 sent in a few. He says, I would be, I would have an ugly caterpillar. I have no idea where that comes from, but I guess, <laughs> but I guess these ideas get a little weirder. Uh, Micah, he thinks you would uh, have a bull. All right. Uh, you're pretty bullish. I, I agree with bull that. Bull Patronus. That's kind of cool. Uh, Eric, you would have a sphinx. <laughs> a sphinx. How do you pronounce that? Sphinx. 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 Um, Jamie would have a beaver, <laughs> which I guess makes sense. Uh, ben, an RPG. What's an RPG? I don't Isn't know. 
role playing game. Role playing game, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's also, isn't it like a machine gun or something? Oh, maybe. Wait, Google Someone look it up. RPG. Yeah. Keep going. Uh, Nick yeah. would have a fox. Laura would have a bunny. Ah. Uh, Matt would have a tiger. <laughs> I like this one. Mikey would have a leprechaun. <laughs> and listeners would have an iPod. Aw. It's kind of a clever idea. Because we are the Patronus. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. A rocket-propelled grenade. Oh. <laughs> or uh, radar product generator. Uh, it's well, the computer in the NEXTRAD system that receives polar coordinate-based radar data from the RDA and processes these data into end-user products. Either yeah, one. Yeah, I think, I think we'll go into the grenade. Um, some more submissions from Valerie, 20, of College Park, uh, Maryland. Micah and Al, because of his knowledge. I think that's accurate. That's really cool. Mr. Owl. Eric, you would have a squirrel if Valerie were to decide for you, because you were clever. Hmm. I was considering a fox, but they're too harsh. Andrew would have a cat. Persistent. Didn't I say cat last week? Yeah. Little yeah. kitty cat? Yeah. Meow. Uh, Jamie would have a dog for loyalty. Laura would have a cheetah. Or a lioness, because she is fierce yet sweet. That's so ben, true. I don't know what Valerie is implying here, but he, she says that Ben would have an <laughs> elephant. Smart, strong, and dot, dot, dot. dot, dot she dot. leaves Whoa. it at that. Well, Never do, forgets? I, I I don't know. Likes peanuts? Does tricks in the circus shows? Ben does tricks in the circus. All right, so thanks, Val, for those. And finally, Rachel14 of uh, Stuttgart, Germany. I think that Andrew would be a gerbil, Micah would definitely be a lion, and Eric would be a screech owl. So, some similar animals, but not all for the same people. Everyone has their different opinions. So, who do you think would win, uh, Andrew? Mine or your Patronus, if Rachel had her way? The, the screech owl versus the gerbil? Uh, the screech owl. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you would win that one. Time now for quote, quote, quiz, quiz, quiz. This is a very broad one. Where's the dog? Hermione. The answer is Hermione. <laughs> Page 338 in the paperback American edition. That's great. <laughs> okay, so now it is time for emails this week to wrap up the show. I'll read the first one. From Charletta, 17 of Scotland. Hey guys, first of all, just wanted to say that I'm a huge fan of the show. I've been listening for a while and Jamie is my favorite co-host because he is British. Come on, the Brits. I'd just like to point something out to you about Scabbers and the Sneakoscope. In episode 194, you mentioned that the Sneakoscope had gone off twice in Scabbers' presence, when, in fact, it had gone off four times. First in Romania, when Ron bought it, it kept spinning at the dinner, where Fred and George put Beatles in Charlie's Charlie soup. Ron keeps Scabbers in his pocket, so it is highly likely that he would be there. Secondly, Ron was trying to send the package to Harry, and it kept going off, but he assumed that it was because he wasn't supposed to use that out. Scabbers would almost certainly have been there then. You mentioned the last two in Chapter by Chapter. On the train, and when Ron kicks Harry's trunk in an attempt to brutally injure Crookshanks. So thank you for that clarification. It was actually four times, guys. Yeah. Okay. 
Micah, can you take the next email from Alex? Next email from Alex, 14 of Boston, and he is talking, or maybe she is talking about, uh, the hourglasses. And they say, I was listening to recent episodes of your show, and you were discussing whether the hourglasses in the Great Hall were in the movies, books, or both. In a recent interview posted on MuggleNet's news feed, Stuart Craig describes them as, quote, the device for recording house points at Hogwarts isn't in the books. It's a background detail that my team came up with. Each house has different colored beads and a marker with their house emblem pointing to their level. It's always been there in the corner of the Great Hall, but no one ever notices it. It's our little conceit. Apparently, when it was first put together, we created a national shortage of beads. So, this is Stuart Craig's insight, and I just wanted to clear that up. And I think, Eric, you pointed out, and I was actually just going to say this, that they are in the books. They're in Order of the Phoenix uh, at the end. The point is, they are in the books. The the right the hourglasses that hold house beads. Yes, because you know, Harry says he sees them rise in Gryffindor and fall from yeah. Slytherin or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Eric, yeah. next email. This email comes from Stephanie from Chicago. She says, Sirius's intentions. Hello, MuggleCasters. I just have a quick query question comment about Prisoner of Azkaban chapter by chapter. On the last episode, you brought up... Uh, why or how the teachers knew that Sirius was after Harry? Don't you think that Snape would have known that Sirius was definitely not a Death Eater, considering their past and the hatred they shared for one another, and the fact that he was best friends with James, Snape's nemesis? Wouldn't Snape have something to add to the discussion of Sirius Black? I apologize because I didn't go back and check the book or anything, but I don't remember this being addressed at all. I really enjoy the show. Keep up the good work. This is an interesting point. What do you guys think? I think his hatred would have blinded anything. Yeah. Do you think so? Because, I mean, <laughs> the reason they picked on Snape at, at Hogwarts was because Snape was into the dark arts. So you wouldn't really imagine anybody, any of the Marauders, being into the dark arts. But no, then again, I mean, No, Peter, I'm saying I think, though, that Snape's feelings towards Sirius would have blinded any desire to tell the truth. Exactly. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree with that. That's just Snape's character. Yep. Lena from Germany writes, Dear Eric... I hate to sound nitpicking, but I would like to write to you with a small correction. On episode 194, you said that Lupin meant of the moon. In fact, it means like a wolf. Lupus being the Latin word for wolf. In addition, Remus was a boy in Roman mythology who was abandoned as a baby and raised by a wolf. But of course you're right that in any case, Lupin's name could have given us a clue very early in the book. And believe me, I'm not telling you this in order to make you look stupid. I'm just a bit obsessed with name origins, which are... which are one more proof of JKR's brilliance. And I'm really happy with every and I'm really happy every time you bring them up. Love Lena. So okay, I, Eric, you I don't have to be response. offended, you know. She did say. You know. Oh no, 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 I'm not offended at all, but I, I did write a letter in response. What did uh, you and I'm say? actually just gonna read that I said, Dear Lena, thank you for your muggle mail. You are right, of course. Lupin, wolf like, and Remus being one of the two founders of Rome, raised by a wolf. Although as you point out, my point was the same. I was mistaken, and I do very much appreciate the correction. It is, quote, Luna, whose name means of the moon or moon-like, or is close to the Latin origin, which is Lunae. Um, correct me again if I'm wrong. And my train of thought stemmed from when Peeves called Lupin Looney Lupin, as in Lunar Lupin. So that's why I thought Lupin meant of the moon. Does the name Lena have anything to do with being <laughs> of the moon or of a wolf? I like that name. I used to work on the name origins page at MuggleNet about eight years ago when I first started, but so has everybody else on the staff at one point or another, I'm fairly certain. Yeah, anyway, true. thanks again for writing. 
Cheers, Eric, a self-confessed, too old for proper letter writing. So, are you falling for Lena? You seem to be trying to strike up conversation with her in the interest I, of your personal I life. Think, I think we need somebody to uh, to run Name Origins at Muggamut, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you would like to hire Lena, uh, and you're also trying to get to know her by asking her the about the Name Origins. All I'm saying is she's got the passion. Yeah, well, I mean, we need an age, though, verification before he can... He can pursue that any further. How old does that say she was? Oh, she's from Germany. I mean, things are legal younger there. <laughs> well, Eric, I hope you two have a great relationship. It would be lovely to see two people meet through MuggleCast and get married. One more thing I wanted to bring up, because we got a lot of emails about this. Uh, we mentioned on last week's show we were we were comparing the uh, the Last Supper to uh, you know J.K.'s Rowling. J.K. Rowling's When 13 Died, The First to Rise is the First to Die. Ah, yeah. And uh, I remember that. It, Jesus wasn't the first to rise. It was actually Judas who betrayed him, and Judas ended up dying first anyway because he committed suicide for betraying Jesus. So I just wanted to bring that up. A lot of people wrote in about that, uh, as well as the uh, Christmas crackers that we uh, talked Ooh, about on last week's shows we looked through your email there's about 50 emails okay. different pictures of christmas crackers <laughs> they couldn't believe that we never heard of these things before at least some <laughs> of us so you know come on guys give us a break but yeah i mean we have great listeners they send in all types of feedback and they correct us when our when we're we're not on top of the game but uh yeah, way too many Christmas cracker emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. We really do appreciate all of your feedback, and it's fun to read the emails. Um, finally, one last email today. It's Chicken Soup for the MuggleCast Soul. We haven't done one of these in a while. Mad16 from the UK, who probably knows about Christmas crackers. Hey, guys, it's actually been a long time since I listened to MuggleCast, so I don't know if you still do this, but that's kind of the topic of my chicken soup. Recently, long after drifting somewhat out of the Potter fandom, I've had trouble in my life that has kept me up at night unable to shut off my mind no matter how tired I am. Turning to the internet late at night, I suddenly remembered MuggleCast. I downloaded a few old favorites and then went off to bed. Hearing the opening music was seeing was like seeing an old friend. Let me try that again. Hearing the opening music was like seeing an old friend, and your hilarious, clever, and wonderfully familiar banter was just the thing I needed to clear my mind and finally get some sleep as well as entertaining me endlessly when I can't. So that's a nice email from Mad. Thank you very much, Mad! And actually, I should mention, speaking of this, um, a MuggleCast listener recently sent directly to me a gift, or maybe not a gift, but a thing she had sitting around her house for a while that she had meant to send send to us and finally did. It's this pickle gun thing, and it ha- it comes with, it's a, it's a pickle shooter, and it comes with four tiny pickles, like plastic pickles, and you load them up and you <laughs> fire them. <laughs> so she sent it to me, but... She she sent it to me also with this very nice letter. Her name is Madeline Collins. Thank you very much, Madeline. Um, very sweet letter, similar to this one. We really love hearing how MuggleCast makes an impact in all of your lives. Um, and we love getting gifts like pickle guns. So You should you. use real pickles, and you should shoot it at uh, passing traffic. Well, Micah, you know, I'm going to be seeing you this summer at Infinitus 2010 to be held... Uh, July 15th to the 18th in Orlando, Florida at Universal Studios Orlando. And I plan on bringing the pickle gun and shooting you. You keep your pickle gun to yourself. No, (laughs) I'm going to sneak up on you and pickle attack you. 
<laughs> I think uh, I think pickle guns are probably not uh, allowed on planes, Andrew. You're but it's to a toy. It. I I could probably check it. I don't know. I think that's a good idea. I'm gonna bring it and start doing stuff. Mike, um, you're gonna be my first target. I'm gonna sneak up on you and shoot you in the back of the head. <laughs> Look, where there's one pickle gun, there's gotta be another. <laughs> so, Micah, you should prepare for this. You should find out where she got that gun, and yeah, we'll have a pickle duel. So, like I was saying, we will be at Infinitus, infinitus2010.org. We are doing a live MuggleCast. HPEF also announced that there will be an exclusive party in the park exclusive to Infinitus attendees. So, in other words, the biggest Harry Potter fans are all going to be gaining, uh, will all gain access to the Harry Potter park all together. No, you know, 10 fans. It's only going to be the best fans because it's everyone from Infinitus. So, live MuggleCast at Infinitus2010. Infinitus2010.org is the website. Register. We can't wait to see you there. We're also going to be doing a MuggleCast meetup. And Ben and I are actually going to be doing a panel on the uh, impact of Harry Potter in all of our lives. It's going to be um, very emotional. I must be honest. It's going to be very um, very emotional. But it's going to be very so fun. Bring your Kleenex. Bring your Kleenex. Panel. I will have mine. As well as some diapers because I may pee myself. MuggleCast.com. Don't you have the other problem? (laughs) (laughs) MuggleCast.com is the website where you can find all the information pertaining to this wonderful podcast that we do. We're trying to get into a regular schedule now, so you can now expect these episodes to come out every other week. So you're getting this episode on Thursday, April 1st. Expect the next episode to be released around April 15th. And we want to do that so that you guys can rely on us. You know when the next episode is coming out. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Mike Tannenbaum. We'll see you next time for episode 196. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.